Welcome to the 10th episode of the Squadron's Pirate Radio podcast. I'm your co-host, Michaela Sani, along with General Manager Scott King. And joining us today is past Vice Commodore and intrepid sailor, Judy Robertson. Judy, welcome. Oh, thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Judy. Intrepid's a good word to describe you, I think, having read your, um, your bio and, and obviously learned a bit about you along the way since I joined the club. Um, but I don't know much about your early days of sailing, so why don't you give us a bit of a background about how you started in the sport? Well, my dad was a member, not that he was a big sailor, but his family, I do believe, has been members of the squadron since the day the club opened. Um, but we grew up on the Northwest Arm, just across from the Dingle Tower, and the tender used to pick us up at a neighbor's wharf in the morning and take us off sailing. And uh, um, my sister, Heather, not the one who was past Commodore, but it's kind of complicated. The two Heathers taught, two Heather Robertsons taught sailing together. Uh, the one of, who had been Commodore was Big Heather. And my sister was Little Heather. So <laughs> Little Heather went off and took sailing and started uh, to instruct. And then Cindy went off and took sailing and uh, actually became head instructor. And then I came along number three and number four, Janet, uh, never wanted to take sailing lessons, but now her kids are keen sailors. But anyway, at 10, I headed off to the, uh, the new squadron, the one on the arm and uh, started to take lessons. And the first two years, my sister, Heather was my instructor, which was really tough because she flunked me in what was called then second standard because I was a little too cocky for her. <laughs> and then the next were you judy were you were you too well happy? it's possible i don't know uh, i i did get to have a little revenge though because many years later i taught a women's sailing course and she came and took the course and i got to teach her in keel boats uh, and uh anyway and then my third year my sister cindy was head instructor so but i persevered and uh once I had my second standard, so after my second summer, I was allowed to take our flying junior out by myself on the weekends. And I don't think my parents ever saw me again. I would fail to make nabs or I'd sail to Bedford. It would take me all day long to sail to Bedford and then leave the boat at a friend's the next day. You know, my parents would drive me back and I'd sail all the way home up the harbor going about two and a half knots. But anyway, uh, my mom used to stand on the veranda and whistle as loudly as she could and we knew it was time to come home. I mean, that's the start of my sailing. <laughs> so Judy, I understand at age 14, you were awarded as the top junior sailor of the squadron. Is that true? Uh, yes. And actually I won a really nice jackknife and that jackknife still goes sailing with me. So it's worth giving quality <laughs> gifts to the kids. Um, I ended up taking uh, in a, the cruising track of sailing, Sail Canada or uh, uh, CYA at the time, used to have two parts to their junior sailing. There was the dinghy part and there was a cruising part. And I really wasn't big enough to race in lasers. Um, and I really wanted to go cruising. And Alan Finley was my instructor. And his brother, Rob, was also teaching at the squadron. Rob, I think they're both still members. Um, uh, they, Alan was my instructor. And their stepfather, Gordon Mack, who had been a life member of the squadron, had a the uh, sailboat Hebride, which is now down in the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic. And they offered to take a bunch of us kids on their boat to go cruising. So my introduction to big boat sailing, besides going sailing a bit with my neighbors uh, on their beautiful wooden sloop, 
was on board Hebrity. So as I say, I'm so old, the first boat I slept on is now in a museum. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty rich. Not many people can say that. <laughs> so we went down to Rogue's Roost and to Mahone Bay. And, you know, we went into Rogue's Roost. I was sure we were the first people to ever have been there. And uh, I just absolutely adored it. And there was another fellow named Paul Sheldon, who is an American, actually, but was good friends with uh, Gordy Mack. And he brought his boat along. So there were a couple of boats. And so then I knew I was hooked on the big boats. And uh, one of my neighbors was Hal Connor, who was a member of the squadron. And he had a CNC 30. And I went down the street, knocked on his door and said, you know, I would really like to go sailing with you. Could I? So I went off with uh, Dennis Connor and Hal Connor and Dave Ritzy and the guys. They let me go on board and I went out and did ocean races with them and got more sick than I had ever been, ever thought I could be in my life. I got so seasick. And, but I was determined to continue doing ocean races. And so Hal uh, mentored me along for a bunch of years. And then I did race with a, uh, a whole bunch of other people did ocean races. And then when I was in my 20s, I luckily landed on uh, Ocean Commotion that was owned by Art Deckman out of La Have, but he was a squadron member as well. And uh, yeah, one of his other crew tried to impress me in the Foxhole Tavern one night and said, oh, I sail on Ocean Commotion. You want to come tomorrow? And of course, he didn't remember he had asked me and I showed up with my little kit bag. And uh, that was the beginning of ten, a 10 year love affair with Ocean Commotion. And we had the best time and those boys kept care of me. And uh, I, I learned so much from all of them. I did five Marbleheads with them and uh, you know, up and down the coast, delivered the boat. Um, Art was, I don't think I could have ever done what I've done in sailing and thought that I could go buy a big boat and go offshore without those very special people who just took me under their wing and showed me that I could do it. And Art, actually one time we were down in Block Island in Rhode Island and he passed me the keys and said, there's two others who can go with you, but I want you to get the boat up to Marblehead. And uh, so we went through the Cape Cod Canal we stayed in a little marina there on the northern side of the canal and in the morning turned the engine on and the frost plug on the engine blew and water went everywhere. We had an electrical fire. We had to hoist the sails just at the entrance to the canal or the exit and we sailed across Boston shipping lane. I rewired the uh, radio so we would have some communication. Nothing else would work and we sailed up to Marblehead and we tacked up through all the mooring balls and managed to hook onto a mooring and we got the engine repaired. But you know, the, the fact that Art had the confidence in me gave me the confidence to be able to do the other stuff. And uh, I have a photograph of him on the boat with all the guys. And uh, you know, it's, I have such wonderful memories of all those times I spent sailing and racing with a whole bunch of people in Nova Scotia. Well, it certainly doesn't sound like you're short on confidence, Judy. I mean, just listening to you talking about, you know, disappearing for a whole day by yourself when you're a, you know, a young child where your parents just assume you're a bit okay through to knocking on people's doors, actively chasing adventure and experience. I mean, if it wasn't for sailing, what do you think you would be doing? I, <laughs> well, I guess if I lived in Alberta or BC, I'd probably mountain climb or something. 
Um, yeah. I don't know. I, the, the ocean, it's like the salt water runs in my veins. Um, but, you know, I'm still scared every time I leave the wharf. I think, oh, can I really do that? Um, but I think that that bit of hesitance also helps to keep you safe and makes you stop and think about what you're doing. It, it, you know, my sister may have said I was cocky, but um, you you have to have the bravado to do it. And, I, you know, a lot of guys definitely have the bravado and they just get on boat and they kind of, you know, whether they know what they're doing or not, they'll just do it. And women kind of stand back and go, can I do it? And I've taught a lot of women sailing too. And I tell them they can do it. And we actually have to be really good sailors because we don't have the strength to be able to fix a mistake. So we have to make sure that we do it properly from the get go. And, you know, I, but still, you know, my, my boat's in Italy now. And I think, you know, what do when I go back, whenever that is, uh, gee, am I going to be able to sail at home? Can I sail back to Morocco and, you know, get out of the med? And, you know, I just kind of get a knot in my stomach thinking about it. And it's like, wow, I'm going to go offshore again. And so I think it kind of keeps you in check because you know that the ocean will always win. You know, it's way stronger than we are. So we just have to figure out how to play a really good game with it and, you know, play safely and be smart about it. Things can happen to anybody. The best sailor in the world can still have bad things happen. But if you plan really well and you really think about what you're doing and try to have as many safety things on board and never think you know at all, because I think that's something I really like about sailing is that every time you go out, you learn something new. Like the other night I was helping my daughters put their mast in and fortunately we're one big family bubble. And so we could all work together and uh, you know, their mast is different than mine. And um, I, uh, Paul Gallant was supervising and Paul just has so many great ideas that he can pass on so much knowledge and, you know, somebody like Phil Wash. Uh, I just love listening to these guys because every time I talk to them, I learn something new. And uh, I think that's, part of the great thing about sailing is that it there's a continuum you you never know it all you you are always learning and as an educator i love that learning part that certainly resonated on the show we've had you know more than a few people so far you know i mean we had dennis linton on the program obviously he he talked a lot about um you know preparation and planning and trusting in process and but, I mean, there's obviously a certain amount of luck that's involved, but I think that sense of adventure and, and, um, and planning is what's really that cautious approach to what it is that you're doing. Um, it's incredibly important. Well, when, when Dennis sailed across the Atlantic with us, the, the wealth of wisdom that Dennis has was so reassuring for me. And we got in a really terrible storm, and we hove two for two and a half days. And Dennis and I had been talking about heaving two and, you know, we once, because at one point the boat was going about 18 knots down a wave wow. and that was with a triple reef in the main and a storm jib up. And, you know, my daughter said, mom, look behind you. And I just looked up at this massive wall of water coming towards us and we surfed down this wave and, you know, we got up to 18 knots when, you know, my boat, if we're really lucky, goes seven and a half knots. And so we hove two immediately and, with the wisdom that Dennis had, and there was something that he always said, 
Uh, and he said, we all need each other or one another. And it's very true. You have to work as a team. You have to make it, you know, happen together. And we definitely all needed each other in that situation to be safe. Yeah, gee, that's obviously this horrific storm. I'm just trying to imagine what, I mean, horrific to me is one thing, but I mean, horrific to someone like yourself that spent so much at sea. So what does a storm have to do to be horrific for you? Uh, well, it was, it, it, well, I don't, it, the waves were so big um, and it was so windy. I think it probably was sustained winds of about 70 knots um, and then gusting more than that. Uh, you know, it'd been blowing 25 and, you know, we knew that there was bad weather and Sandy McMillan had been in contact with us about the weather and we were downloading weather onto the boat and, um, you know, 25 knots, we said, okay, we'll have the three reefs in the main cause you know, if it freshens up and then the system that had gone by before we left Nova Scotia stalled, intensified. And then I believe another one came down from Ontario and they slammed into each other. And it probably should have been a name storm. You know, it, it was, it was huge. And, uh, you know, the waves were so big, you know, it was, it was like nothing I had ever seen before. I'd been in one really, really bad marblehead in, I think it was 89. And, uh, you know, that was foggy. This wasn't foggy and it was rainy, but so once we were hove to, uh, you know, we closed up everything, went down below, and it was uh, actually really comfortable. We could watch movies, uh, drink tea, we prepared meals, and we were down below for two and a half days. Occasionally, I would poke my head out and look and see how horrible it looked out there and went, oh, we're going back down below. And, um, and of course, we were all strapped on when we had been out in the cockpit. Anyway, glad to be down below. And I was watching uh, any marine traffic uh, that was out there. And um, um, I don't know, probably the first day. I haven't got my log in front of me. It's on the boat. But um, I saw a ship coming towards us. And uh, I could see on the plotter with the AIS, it was going to be about five miles away from us. But I thought I would call him anyway to make sure that they know that we're here in case they decide to change course. So I radioed him and he answered right away. And uh, he said, uh, uh, yeah, we can see you, no problem. We don't need to alter course, but are you fine? You know, it's pretty rough out here. And he said, yeah, we're great. We're hope too. Thank you very much. So I don't know how many hours later, um, we saw another ship. I think it was about 300 meters long, huge ship. And it was going to come to within 200 meters of us. And that's like way too close for me. So I, try, I tried to call him on channel 16 repeatedly. I knew my radio worked and he wasn't that many miles away. He should have picked us up, kept calling and nobody was answering. I thought, oh my God, we can't, you know, I can't roll the jib boat and try to sail over here. It's too bad. So um, I used my DSC function on my radio. And if you do not know how to do this, take your manual load or take a radio course from me. And it's really important. Anyway, um, I looked on my plotter. I saw the little icon for the ship and I got the MMSI number off of that ship. And then I put it into my radio and I sent a direct call on channel 70 to him. It's a digital call and it basically rings on his bridge and he answered immediately. 
And, you know, he was probably watching a movie or whatever, because, you know, they were out in the middle of the ocean and they weren't expecting to see a little 40 footer bobbing around. So I, um, uh, I said, you know, you're going to come very close. And he went, Oh yeah. Um, he said, that's fine. We'll alter course. And they did a big swing around us and we didn't see them. I didn't stick my head out to look, but I kept watching him on the, uh, the plotter to make sure he was well clear of us. So um, I was really glad to be able to have that feature on the boat and having all the safety gear is so important. You know, I wouldn't consider going out there without AIS or without, you know, EPIRP, without a life raft, without, you know, as I say, all those things are so expensive to buy if you don't use them. But the moment you have to use them, they are so cheap. So I think if anybody buying mm. sailing safety gear, just keep that in the back of your mind. Yeah, I can't think of a better category. The um, you know, no, better to have it and not need it um, scenario, really, for all of that equipment. That's right, yeah. As you look at your life raft sitting on top of your cabin, you go, oh, I've never even deployed that. Well, I'm really glad I have never deployed that. It cost me thousands of dollars. But, you know, <laughs> if I ever had to get into my life raft, so it's apart- cheap. Very true. So I guess apart from some uh, some safety gear that, that you just mentioned, which is uh, integral to any sort of offshore journey, uh, what are some of the best resources that have helped you along the way? The knowledge of other sailors. The, there's a real advantage mm-hmm. to being a member of a club like the Squadron, where there, you know, it's over 100 years of ocean racing behind us. There's always somebody who can give you some information. You know, it's great to go put your boat on a mooring ball down in front of your cottage somewhere and you go out sailing, but you don't have that constant contact with people. There are so many fabulous sailors at the squadron and people who know how to work on engines and know about this installation or about sails, you know, and how they're designed or what are the best ones to have. And is you know, you could basically interview all these people standing on the wharf and they all have something to share, to make your sailing experience better. So we are really lucky to have that depth of knowledge. And I can say that to any sailor out there, don't be afraid to ask somebody else. If you're not sure, everybody's happy to talk about sailing, everybody at the club. So just put your hand up and ask somebody for help. Ask them for a little bit of wisdom on this or that. Don't be shy because it could be a lifesaver for you or you could, you know, prevent an accident or prevent a grounding, whatever. Just don't be shy. No, that's uh, very well said, Judy. And I understand that you've been able to blend, you know, your passion for sailing uh, and education by founding Nova Sail. Um, so tell us about some of those classes and, and why they're so important for sailors to participate in before they go off on their own adventure. Well, when I was in university, I taught sailing and uh, actually taught in the south coast of France for the Club Med. It was really nice. And, you know, I kept sailing and here, obviously. And then I joined the board the squadron in 2005. And at the time, there was actually no position for vice commodore of sail training. There was just a sail training committee. And I kept pushing and pushing. Like I said, we have to have a vice commoner of sail training. We are a yacht club. So one of the first things I did is that I had a general meeting with the, uh, the members and invited everybody to come and ask them what they wanted in sail training for the club. And 
you know, lots of people talked about junior sailing. And then Mike Whitehouse was there and he said, I'm an instructor evaluator with Sail Canada for uh, Q-boat sailing and cruising. And he said, I'd really like to get some back at the squadron. You know, in the past, there have been a little bit of courses here and there, but it's really important. We have all these big boats, people buy big boats and, you know, they've had this dream to go sailing, but they don't know how to use the radio. They don't know how to navigate. They don't, or they know a little bit because their friend taught them, but, you know, he said, I'd really like to teach the courses. So, Mike started teaching courses and um, doing VHF courses and PCOC courses and whatever. And uh, as he had been doing for years anyway, but just privately on his own boat. And uh, he trained me as a, an instructor. And then I became an instructor evaluator with Sail Canada. And I just started teaching courses on the side. Being a, a teacher, I taught everything from primary to university. Uh, and I love teaching, love sailing. And I thought, okay, you know, I've got to blend this and I've got to make it safer for people. And also, I think a lot of women have found it very comforting having another woman woman teaching them. And, and I'll, many times I've gone out on other people's boats with women and their friends. You know, uh, they've spent years sailing with their husband and kids, but spent a lot of time keeping care of the kids and don't feel confident getting the boat home alone. And um, uh you know, it's been great going sailing with them because they're so enthusiastic about learning how to sail better and have so much more confidence. And then they could go sailing as a team with their husband, partner, whatever. And it's a much safer situation than having only one person on board who knows how to operate everything. Because if that one person falls and typically his, because he's typically the one who's a skipper, uh, hits his head or breaks his, you know, femur or something, then that other person, the other person doesn't know how to turn the engine on, doesn't know how to uh, navigate at all, doesn't know how to use the radio, then that's a scary scenario. So I just, I, you know, that whole safety thing and teaching and communicating, you can probably tell I like to talk. So, um, you know, uh, just imparting that information. I just actually last night, finished a two-part VHF course, and I did it on Zoom when I had uh, 25 people in the course. And, uh, you know, that, that was a little challenging on Zoom, but, you know, getting that information out is, is important. It doesn't matter how we do it. It's, you know, sharing it and making boating safer for everybody because now there's 25 more people who have got their radio certification, and that means 25 more people who are safer on the water. Absolutely. And, um, you know, expanding the sport of sailing is a huge um, mission of the squadrons. Um, I understand that you are also heavily involved uh, in the installation of, uh, of the new Marine Activity Center, um, as your term is a uh, Vice Commodore of Sail Training. So talk to us a little bit about that. So, uh, yeah, I remember the old building because I think it was a temporary building that was put in when the marina was dug out back in the, you know, 67 or whatever. And, um, you know, when I took junior sailing in the late 60s started, uh, the building already had squirrels living in it and it was already rusted. And then that building was there until what, 2008 or something when it was demolished. And my ex, uh, Steve Kempton and I uh, were standing outside the building and looking at it. it was such a mess. And Toby Norwood came along and he said, you know, this is disgraceful we have to have a new building. This 
this can't stay here any longer. You know, we're a first class club. We, we want to encourage sailing and young people being here in a healthy, safe environment. We got to get rid of this place. And so that's where the conversation started with me. And uh, Steve and I worked on it for a bunch of years and hauled in some other people uh, on the team. Uh, it, you know, it was a really wonderful team. And um, Heather Robertson helped a bunch. Uh, well, Toby Norwood, of course, and uh, who's Aaron's uh, father. And, um, you know, we just kept driving through. And some people were saying, oh, we don't need that. You know, we don't need junior sailing it costs us money it's you know but the if I hadn't gone to junior sailing I wouldn't be a sailor and as I remember sitting around with a whole bunch of people one night and said okay how many of you started as junior sailors and I think there were about 15 of us there and I think that one or two had not started as junior sailors so it's really important to encourage the young people to not only be racers but to become lifelong sailors you have to have that a really good balance of uh you know, finding, finding what's right for everybody and super competitive sailing is not right for everybody. You know, like my daughter, Steph, who taught sailing at the squadron, she, and when she started to play soccer, I'd say, go get the ball. And she'd say, no, mom, that's not nice. They're the other teams playing with it. So I knew right away that she was never going to be a super keen <laughs> uh, competitive sailor, <laughs> but she loves to sail and now has her own, you know, 24 has her own, um, know, a 34 foot sailboat and uh, has done immense amount of sailing with me. So, you know, we want to encourage people to be lifelong sailors. And, you know, I look at Garnet Caldwell and, you know, at 90 something, am I supposed to say that? Anyway, he still goes out sailing by himself Mm -hmm. and it's absolutely wonderful to see that. That's why it was especially pleasing for me to see the kids on the water um, in, in recent, just this week, actually, um, which was fantastic to see. I mean, that whole part of the club is incredibly important to our future. Um, so I think anything that we can do to get kids involved in the sport, and as you say, Judy, work out and let, let themselves work out <laughs> if they want to be competitive or if they just want to you know, be recreational, um, because they're equally important. I know when uh, we were building the pool, and there were people who didn't want to have the pool. They said, oh, no, that costs a lot of money. But I said, you know, I live closer to Armdale Yacht Club. And it would be easier for me just to go there or leave a boat at the WAG or whatever. But for me, when the pool went in, and I'd always been a member of the squadron anyway, but um, I said, you know, that's another drawing feature. And that will keep the families there. You know, people, once your kids are grown, you don't use the pool so much. But... It keeps the young families there. They can go for a sail and they can go for a swim after and just enjoy the whole club. I hope we can get the pool open this year. You know, who knows? But that's that's not because of something that we've done. Um, and that, that whole family experience and having a healthy club and keep those young people sailing as they, you know, they as they move through their teenage years too. And I think it's, you know, important that we as boat owners also invite those young people to come sailing with us. Yes, this year it's going to be harder, but, um, you know, everybody keep that in mind that, uh, you know, let, let's get those young people out on our boats uh, and, and really encourage them in all these different parts of sailing. Let them take the helm. You know, Wednesday night, we're, we're out there just enjoying ourselves. Let young people take the helm and 
see what it feels like to drive a big boat on one of the legs of the race. And then it just encourages them, gives them self-confidence and teach them how to fly the spinnaker or, or talk to them about what you're navigating, what the marks you're going around and share your wealth of information. And, you know, well, you get them hooked for life. And then we have the, the future of our club right there. Obviously, agree, Judy. I mean, I think, I think, I think funnily enough, yeah. actually, Dennis was the only person so far on the podcast that didn't start sailing at a very young age. So, Dennis is obviously a bit of a but everybody else certainly, you know, got um, you know in, involved and engaged with the sport at a young age, and, and it just was, became part of their life. So, very important. Yeah, well, Dennis has been sailing long enough now that it's almost been a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, sorry, Dennis. Am I allowed to tell his age? <laughs> I, I think he <laughs> he did mention it on his episode, so I, you're safe. I, yes. I think that uh, the day after we arrived in the Azores, he turned seventy-seven. I think it was, so uh, we got to celebrate a, a nice birthday with him. It was very special. Yes, yeah, so Judy, obviously a very different year this year, but we're still hopeful of you know running a lot of our our, um, our sailing events as as much as we can. Um, and Venetian night, obviously, I understand there's an interesting story there. We had our, our I think, I'm going to say, I'm going to be, sound a bit Trumpy here, but the best ever Venetian night last last year. Um, and we're looking <laughs> forward to having to having the best, like the biggest biggest fleet ever this year. So, but there's an interesting backstory there for you personally. Yes. Um, as I said, I think my family has been members of the squadron since the get-go. My dad's mother, last name was Stairs. And uh, the first Commodore of the Squadron was Stairs. But also there's the history behind Venetian Night. And uh, the kind of the base of the, the history of it is that Captain William Stairs had been in Africa um, and they found Livingston and he went on several expeditions. And he grew up in a house that I believe was uh, next door to the WAG, one north of there where the Archbishop's house had been and the uh, St. Mary's Boat Club is. That's where their family house was. And their cousins lived, the Joneses lived in the um, uh, the WAG house. And anyway, when he came back from Africa, he was a an international star at this point. You know, it was big media in the English world around this expedition or these expeditions actually that Stairs had been on. And I'm reading right now his diary from... Uh, the 1880s of when he was going through the Congo. It's really interesting. Anyway, um, when he came back, they had electric lights, if you can imagine, on their property. And uh, they, the lights wrote the name stairs. And there were bonfires and fireworks and whatever along the shores of the arm. And um, that is kind of where the inspiration for a Venetian night, I don't know how Venetian comes into that. Maybe it should be, you know, the Congo night or something <laughs> or the Livingston mm. night. And actually up in the North end, there are three streets. There's uh, stairs, Stanley and Livingston. And that's where the names of those streets come from. Um, so, you know, when I'm out there on Venetian night, I think about uh, how interesting, uh, you know, his Captain William stairs, story was in Africa. And actually in his book, I just saw that, uh, he had written about his sailboat at home and his sailboat was called the Blue Nose. Uh, I wish he had actually put that into the ship's registry and we could have kept that name in the family. The Stairs is actually through their uh, uh, ship Chandlery business. Um, it was called William Stairs, son of Morrow. Rich Morrow's family was also in, you know, married into the Stairs family, Rich being a squadron member as well. Um, and, uh, of course, um, you know, the Stevie Stairs is a member. 
And uh, they had owned over a hundred sailing ships during the age of sail. And I have a list of the, the vessels that they had, you know, they were uh, transporting stuff down to the Caribbean and over to Europe. And, you know, they were huge ship janglers and ship builders. So uh, like I said, the, you know, the salt water is kind of in my veins, even though my last name's Robertson. <laughs> I love that. Love that line, salt water in your veins. <laughs> Well, Judy, it's been an absolute pleasure for us to chat with you today. And uh, we've, we've been saying this along the way, Scott and I, that we need to have a part two with a lot of our guests. And uh, we could definitely spend a lot more time chatting with you and, and learning about uh, more aspects of the history of the club. That's for sure. Uh, so thank you again for taking the time. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, it's been really great. Um, you know, I, I love talking about sailing and I know that there's going to be a lot of challenges with sailors this year and how we try to figure out how we go sailing, but you know, spending time with your family or your spouse or your partner or whatever, and getting out on the water is what it's all about and having fun races. And we're just going to have to reinvent how we, uh, how we sail and how we, work with our club and you know we're going to thrive and come through this uh you know our ancestors went through this 100 years ago with the spanish flu and um actually my grandfather died of the spanish flu my dad's father and you know they rebuilt they continued on and you know our club has flourished for the last 100 years and it will continue to flourish i'm sure for hundreds of more years so anyway i'm really glad to spend the last half hour with you thanks thanks judy and that's a wrap for this week. But before we go, we wanted to introduce you to our next guest, current Vice Commodore of House and Grounds, Jeff Kurish. Jeff shares his introduction to sailing, which started in his 20s, along with some exciting offshore adventures since. Plus, we will also chat about his role as VC and what that entails. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.